want to welcome you to St. James Christian Church this morning. Grateful that you made it out on this icy cold morning. Uh, just a couple of a uh, couple of announcements to start off with today. First of all, I want to thank uh, all the guys who were here yesterday for our uh, first ever No Regrets Men's Conference. It was a great morning, and we're uh, already talking about next year and making plans for how we can do it again and do it uh, do it even better and, and bigger. And uh, it was just it was it was very encouraging. It was great to spend the spend the, the day with you guys. Also want to remind you that the Valentine Banquet is coming up. Lisa and I making uh, rapid preparations. We're just a couple of weeks out now. Valentine Banquet tickets will be $15 a piece. It's going to be on Sunday evening of the, the 20th of February, so it's the Sunday after Valentine's. Uh, those tickets are available today, and Lisa have them in the lobby if you'd like to purchase your ticket today, and uh, we would love to have you there. Uh, you know, around here, we we like to say that we are transforming lives through Jesus Christ. That is our objective. That's that's what we want to be about, and we only know one way to do that. The key part of that is through Jesus Christ. We're not really doing the work of transforming lives. Jesus does that work. What we want to be doing is everything that we can to introduce you to Jesus, to teach you about Jesus, to be walking with Jesus ourselves so that we can help you walk with Jesus. Because the more time that we spend with Jesus, the more we know him, the more invested we are in his life, the more he is invading our life, and that transformation can happen because of him. I need to tell you a story this morning. Some of you have heard this story before, so you'll hopefully forgive me for that. It's been a while since I've told it, so a lot of you are new. Most of you will know that I keep uh, chickens a lot fewer than I used to because the uh, foxes had quite a heyday the last couple of years. But uh, I, I have uh, four left, and uh, I enjoy them, have enjoyed keeping chickens for a long, long time, uh, many years now. started actually when I was a kid, but I need to tell you the story this morning of my very first chicken. It was a little banty hen, uh, and uh, my best friend, uh, Brian, lived up the street from me, a couple of years older than I was. Uh, we were inseparable as young boys, and uh, Brian, his family had a big pasture, and in that pasture, there was about a half a dozen chickens that were free-ranging. We had no idea where they came from. They just started, they just showed up in the pasture, and they were running around the pasture, and we decided uh, we, wanted to, we wanted to catch one. Well, the only one we could catch was this little banty hen, little, little bitty thing. Uh, but we eventually caught it. I don't remember how we caught it, because we could be quite ev evasive. But we eventually caught this little banty hen. We took it back up to his house, and they had some pens there out behind his, uh, his house that were empty. And we put this banty hen into this pen, and it had a box there. And then we would go back about every three to five minutes looking for eggs. 
we weren't sure how this whole thing worked, but we knew the chickens laid eggs. So about every three to five minutes, we're like, has it happened yet? And it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening quite fast enough. And we had told uh, Brian's dad about this chicken, and he was very unimpressed. He thought, what we, what we really need is for this chicken to lay some eggs. And then Brian's dad would be convinced of the value of our, our find. So we went back out into the pasture. Actually, we went beyond the pasture to one of the bordering neighbors' property where there was a chicken coop, snuck through the barbed wire fence, opened up the nesting box, and lo and behold, there's eggs in there. So we grabbed an egg, and we took it back up to Brian's house, and we put it in the box with our chickens, not realizing, of course, that Nancy chickens lay smaller eggs, and it's not a full-size egg. would have been quite the painful delivery. We put that egg in there, and then we go and get Brian's dad. Our chicken laid an egg. He knows something's up, but he plays along. Oh, your chicken laid an egg, did it? Still not impressed. Like, what is it going to take? So later in the afternoon, we go back out of the pasture, back through the barbed wire fence, into the box, take another egg, bring it back up to the house, put it under our chicken, go back and get Brian's dad. Dad, our chicken laid a second egg today. He's still not impressed. The next day, we decide, well, we've got to, we've got to, our chicken's not laying, so we gotta, we got to keep the eggs coming. So we go back to this neighbor's property and open up the nesting box. This time, there's a hen sitting in there. And we kind of wanted that hen. You know, we're already stealing eggs. Why not steal the bird? So we could just tell Brian's dad that it's one of the birds that was running around in the pasture. Well, we wanted the bird, but we're also a little bit afraid of the bird. And I don't know if you've ever like like gone to get eggs from underneath a chicken when it's sitting on the on the nest, but it'll peck at you pretty serious. And if you're not kind of aggressive and just get after it, uh, eh, you know it doesn't hurt that much. But it was it was scary for us. So we're trying to get this bird, and it's cackling and it's pecking at us, and we're like, well, okay, what are we gonna do? So we go back up. Brian's house, and we get a fishing net. We take this fishing net down and put it over the bird, and now we're trying to scoop the bird into the fishing net, and the bird is just screaming at us and squawking and making all the fuss that it possibly can, and we're so distracted with that, we didn't notice that the owner was walking up towards the chicken coop, and all of a sudden, there she is, and we're sitting, standing there with an open nesting box, with a net over one of her chickens. It was a little hard to explain. She knew who Brian was. She didn't recognize me, but she knew who Brian was. And she grabbed both of us by the ear, dragged us to her car, and drove us up to Brian's house. Now she's out in the main room. We've been sent to Brian's room. We're in Brian's bedroom not knowing what terrible fate awaits us out there, we're in Brian's room, 
And Brian starts saying to me, we didn't do anything. And I'm like, well, he's two years older than me. Maybe he knows something I don't. So I'm like, yeah, well, we didn't do anything. And then he's like, well, we did. <laughs> but stewed about it for a while. Nothing seemed to be happening. Nobody was coming to knock on the door. Eventually, Brian says, you might as well get out of here. So I went out through Brian's window and ran home. By the time I got home, my family was seated around the dinner table. I walk in, and there's, there's all of them, my mom and my dad and my three sisters. They've all heard this story. They got the phone call from Brian's parents. My mom says to me, you're not in trouble. We just want you to tell the truth. I took a deep breath. We didn't do anything. She lied. And that's how I became a chicken thief. Has branded me my whole life. Now, the reason that I needed to tell you that story this morning is that it is a story that to me illustrates the difference between being right and being righteous. I was right the whole time. We first, uh, we first decided we were going to steal this egg. It was the right thing to do because we really needed Brian's dad to accept this chicken. Is what we wanted. And so our definition of what was right in that moment was what suits my purposes. And then later, it was all about getting dad's approval, getting dad to affirm that this chicken was valuable. So being right in that moment meant that you received the acclaim of others, that others endorsed you. In Brian's bedroom... Being right meant that I could declare myself righteous even when I knew that I wasn't. That I could just wipe away the wrongness of what I had chosen to do by declaring that it wasn't wrong anymore. And when I got home, right simply meant not being punished, not facing the consequences of my choices. All of that in contrast to what righteousness is. Righteousness is doing right by God's standards. So it's completely different from the way that we define right for ourselves. And righteousness is incredibly important. And as we got into the Sermon on the Mount last week, this is one of the things that we've been talking about is that this whole sermon is about righteousness. It's, it's Jesus wanting us to understand what righteousness really looks like, how it operates, how it functions, and what its role is for us. We can be righteous, clearly, only in Christ. And righteousness is important because it is the source stuff of the kingdom of Christ. So Jesus says in the next chapter, uh, we did chapter 5 last week, we're looking at chapter 6 this week in Matthew 6, 1, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, 
you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's from the NIV. A more literal translation is don't, don't perform your charity to be, to be seen. But I actually like this translation where it says uh, do not practice because it, it reveals to us that righteousness is in fact a practice. Perfection is a work of Jesus Christ. That's where we ended last week. We need to understand that. That Christ calls us to be perfect, but at the same time, he acknowledges and we know that we're not capable of becoming perfect on our own. That is a work of Jesus Christ in our life. But righteousness is still a practice for us as human beings. Christ has the power to forgive, to declare uh, to declare us righteous because of our faithfulness. But this is, as Jesus describes it, a cooperative effort. We are not passive in this relationship. We are actually in pursuit of this righteousness. We are trying to get closer to it. We are trying to understand it, trying to, trying to live it out. We practice it. Like you might practice learning an instrument. Or even you might practice the law or practice medicine. Because these are things that uh, we will never perfect, right? But we practice to try to get better. We practice to try to do better. We practice to get closer, to gain experience, to gain knowledge. Righteousness is a practice, a practice that we, we want to be constantly gaining experience and knowledge of righteousness, what righteousness is, and how to live a life of righteousness. It is a cooperative effort, and Jesus essentially now, in chapter 6, gives us a primer course in what righteousness is, how all of this works. And it is difficult. It cuts to the heart of things pretty quickly. It is, if we allow it to be, a profoundly convicting message even now as it was to the people who first heard it. Jesus is telling us the way. He's describing the pathway that leads towards righteousness. It's how we get where we need to be. And it tells us that true righteousness matters, but that righteousness is not a checklist. Righteousness is about becoming. It's about the path that we follow in order to work with Jesus in making us into the righteousness for which we were intended. And so he says in verse 2, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. True, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The general theme here is that righteousness requires spiritual integrity. It's not that the practice of faith is something that we hide from the world. It's just that the practice of faith is not something that we do for show. It's not something that we do specifically to be seen. And that's an easy trap to fall into. We have a tendency... We have a tendency to prioritize those expressions that are outward. Why? 
Well, because those are the things that people are going to see. I remember a dear friend of mine confessing to me that he had gotten involved in a very sinful lifestyle. And we're talking about it, and I'm empathizing with him, and I, I'm not really, honestly, not staring down my nose at him, not, not judging him, but I said, I could never do that. He said, what do you mean? Why couldn't you ever do that? I didn't think I'd ever be doing that. Why couldn't you do it? And I said, because I'd be afraid of who would see me. That's the truth. It, wa- it, wasn't that I'm not, it wasn't that I'm not vulnerable to temptation or sin. Just be afraid of who sees me. We tend to prioritize those things that are seen by others. And then in secret, maybe we could be something different. Maybe, maybe we could live differently. We can look the part of the faithful Christian and, and, and in secret maybe be something else. In contrast to this, Jesus says, devote your secret life to God. Start with your secret life. Your public life will take care of itself. The parts of yourself that everybody sees, that'll take care of itself if you're focused on making your secret life devoted to God. And what's the significance of that? There's no conflicting motivation. It's not doing it or not doing and not avoiding sin because, because I don't want to be seen by you and I'm not doing good works in order to gain your applause. The things that I do in secret, I'm doing specifically because of my relationship with God. The relationship that I'm trying to cultivate. My motivations are not divided. In Christian moralism, we kind of play this game in which sin only counts if I get caught. And that's where I was with my family at the dinner table. It's like it didn't happen, really, unless everybody knew that it happened. And so even though everybody actually knew that it happened, I'm thinking uh, somehow I can make it not happen by telling them that it didn't. You see how broken moralism is? that we're playing this weird game. Righteousness is not merely avoiding the sin that we fear others will see or doing the good works that we hope that they will see. It is about spiritual integrity, being the person that we claim to be. As C.S. Lewis put it, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. When we practice righteousness in secret, we are practicing righteousness for an audience of one, and that audience is God himself. And Jesus says, the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Must be important because he says it three times. He says it in regard to giving charity. He says it in regard to how you pray to God. And he says it in regard to fasting. The Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You do these things for him, for righteousness, whether or not anyone else knows about it, this is how we practice 
are righteous. He says in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, he says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is almost an aside that he gives. It's, it's, it's a little bit separate from the flow of the rest of the passage. And so it, it bears repeating this morning as something of an aside. We have an onslaught in our Western culture, in our Western Christian culture, an onslaught of false teaching about prayer. Every year there are new books published, millions of books and articles sold, promising to tell us, to reveal to us the secrets to effective prayer. Can I just ask you that whenever you see a title like that, that maybe just cause a little red flag to pop up in in your mind, when someone promises to tell you the secret to make your prayers more effective, because it is a false teaching, It, it, it borders on heresy, and we're all vulnerable to it, because we have all prayed at times, earnestly and repeatedly, for something that we desperately wanted God to do, and God seems not to answer. Or at least he doesn't answer in the way that we're hoping that he will. And so it's easy for us to kind of fall into this temptation of thinking, well, maybe I'm just not doing it right. Maybe, maybe I don't have the right posture. Maybe I need to, I'm just supposed to be on my knees, maybe face on the ground, maybe hands up. Maybe I'm not saying the right words. And there's always somebody who's got a new book out that promises to tell you exactly what it is that will unlock the power of prayer in your life. They promise that there's some format, some formula, some words that you need to speak, some expressions that you need to use. And usually these expressions are going to release God's blessings into your life. Let me tell you this morning, in no uncertain terms, this is not my opinion. This is scripture. There is no secret formula for effective prayer. Don't get caught up in this false teaching. Jesus says, God loves you. God already knows what you need. He simply wants to be in conversation with you. And the heresy of the secret to effective prayer is that it invokes this vending machine Jesus. If we could just get the right combination of letters and numbers and change, then God surrenders his will and whatever we want comes popping out of the machine. And this is not how prayer works. God is not going to stop being God. He's not going to yield to us because we found the magic combination. The secret to effective prayer is that there is no secret. Talk to God. That's it. You want that to be more effective? Well, there are passages about that in Scripture. They're not secrets. 
They are not secrets. You want to be more effective in prayer? Pray about everything. Philippians 4. Pray always. 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray persistently. Luke 11. And more important than anything else, the prayers of the righteous are particularly effective. James 5 and 16. Righteousness. It's, it's no wonder we want some other secret. If righteousness is the secret to effective prayer, it's like, isn't there a shortcut? Isn't there some other way? Then Jesus says it after, after sharing the Lord's Prayer. He says uh, in uh, verse 14, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Oh. Uh, this has got to be a wake-up call. He actually said that. This has got to be a wake-up call. God's forgiveness. This is all about righteousness, right? This is Jesus' talk. This is Jesus' primer to us in becoming righteousness. This is all about righteousness. And we want effective prayers. We want God to hear our prayers more readily. That's about righteousness. Forgiveness is the bedrock of our becoming righteous. Receiving forgiveness so that all that brokenness, all that sin is now dismissed and God can declare us righteousness. That forgiveness has to come. If that forgiveness is not there, righteousness is not there. Righteousness is poisoned by our own unforgiveness. I mean, there's just no way around this. It gives us pause. Because honestly, we all have people in our lives that are difficult to forgive. We all have people who have sinned against God and, and have sinned against us. And a great many of them, in all honesty, probably don't deserve our forgiveness and have probably never asked for our forgiveness. But they're not the problem. See, the reality is that, <laughs> that we've also sinned against God and man. We also don't necessarily deserve forgiveness from God. And let's be even more honest. Some of the grievances that we hold against others are not even about things that they did wrong. About things where we had an expectation of them that they didn't meet, and so now they're wrong because they didn't meet my expectation. Now, we have to read all of this in context. This is a sermon of absolutes. This is a sermon about perfect righteousness that we, that we know we're not capable of independently of Christ. It's about a perfect righteousness that really highlights our own limitations, our own failures. But, if God can forgive us, no matter what our debt, 
we refuse to forgive others, man. Now, I understand that forgiveness can be a struggle. That's just reality. There are people that it's difficult to forgive. There are situations that it's difficult to forgive. Sometimes forgiveness is a genuine struggle. But sometimes it's not. And it's not because we've, cho- we've chosen not to struggle. We've just decided that, that we deserve to be offended, that we have the right to be offended. So we'll hold on to old grudges. We'll nurture old wounds over many years. But if Jesus doesn't claim his right to hold our sins against us, we cannot legitimately claim the right to hold others' sins against him. And if that's not enough on point, Jesus then pivots to the heart of spiritual integrity. In verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says that treasure leads the heart. And understand this word treasure is not merely about money or goods. It's about what we treasure. Right? Think of it like, like pirates. What is it that's in that chest? And where have you buried it? What is it that you place the ultimate value on? What is it that you hoard? What is it that you collect up? May not be something terrible. Many of us treasure things that are essentially good things, things that come from God's creation. But because it's a treasure, it's an ultimate priority. And if our ultimate priority is rooted in the broken world, then it is not rooted in the kingdom of God. This is, this is the ultimate question. Are we making God compete for our attention? He goes on, he says, the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is a little bit confusing, this metaphor and the way that the, the, the phraseology works, it basically comes down to this. Where your focus is determines your light. Where you turn your eyes, where you turn your attention, where your eyes are focused determines how much light you're letting into your life. And again, a lot of the things that we can focus on are not terrible things. We love our families, we love our homes, we, we maybe even love our church. These are not bad things. But these are things that were created for us. They are the creation, they're not the creator. When we focus our attention on the world, on the creation, we are blocking out the light that comes to us only from the creator. If our focus is not on God, if our focus is not on Jesus, not letting the light into our life, and therefore life becomes darker. 
says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or in uh, those of you who grew up in the King James Version know that that's mammon. Cannot serve God and mammon. Money is not a very, not a very good translation, honestly, because mammon is a more encompassing idea. It encompasses this idea of treasure, again, where your treasure is. But more fundamentally, it is what you place your trust in. Do you place your trust in God or in something else? Here's this really difficult part of this sermon. Righteousness is absolute and exclusive. If you treasure the things of God, your heart will be with God. If you treasure something else, your heart will be somewhere else. If you turn your attention, turn your eyes to God, your life will be filled with his light. If you focus your attention somewhere else, your life will be dark. Forgiveness is yours for the asking. Salvation is yours for the asking. Eternal life, this is a free gift. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ wants to make you righteous. All of this is absolutely true. We still have to choose Jesus. And there's no tied game he is the master. He is the only master. Because you can't serve two. And he says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Therefore, Therefore, he says, in light of all this, in light of the fact that this righteousness is absolute, in light of the fact that there's really, there's really only one way that any of this works, in light of the fact that Jesus is the only answer to this problem that we all face, in light of this fact, don't worry. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be painfully honest with you this morning. I find this passage devastating because I'm a worrier. I find it devastating. Why, why, if you're a worrier, why would you find this passage devastating? This is, this is, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. Right? Except it's not. That's not the message here message is not forget about the things that worry you. Forget about the problems that you face. message is trust Jesus with the things that worry you. And trust Jesus with the problems that you face. This is more than just forgetting our troubles. Jesus says, don't worry saying what shall you eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Folks, worry is the antithesis of faith. 
And I say this to you this morning as a confessed worrier. Worry is the antithesis of faith. And why is this so devastating to me? Well, because this stuff matters to me. I have spent my life in the church. I have spent four-fifths of my life actively following Jesus. I have done and am doing my best to live for Him. I have spent most of my career serving Him. My home and my family are a story of the pursuit of Jesus' truth and Jesus' kingdom. I have children in the mission field as we speak. And there's a very human part of me that wants to think, you're doing pretty good. Worry exposes the hard edges, the limitations of my personal faith. It's not just the emotion. We all have the emotion of worry. We all experience that. We all have anxiety from time to time. It is allowing fear and worry to dictate my decisions, to dictate the choices that I make, the way that I live. Worry is the space where doubt and frustration and hopelessness are allowed to darken my vision. Constantly think of the answer given by this father who approaches Jesus who wants this demon cast out of his son and nobody else seems to be able to do it. And, and Jesus chastises them all for their lack of faith. And he says, Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. My faith is there. My faith has driven my life. My faith is still weak. My faith still needs God's intervention. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. This is my constant prayer. And it is my constant prayer because of this. Worry basically means one of two things. It means... Either God is not really in charge, or it means God's will for my life is not enough for me. Jesus says, verse 33, seek his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, that's the part we can all agree with. Here's the part. Here's the part that Jesus asserts. Here's the part that Scripture says over and over. Here's the part that we need to make sure that we understand and we need to ask ourselves if we really believe it. The answer you seek is the kingdom and the righteousness of God. The answer to life, to peace, to joy, to contentment, to love, to hope, to salvation. The answer to everything, no matter what it is that you're facing. The answer is the kingdom and the righteousness of God. 
you seek that first, all the other pieces will fall into place. The world will whisper, no, you need to seek your kingdom first, and then you can get around to this business of following Christ. Christ has just told us that is impossible. You cannot serve those other masters and then claim to serve Jesus. It's one or the other. And so here's this crazy assertion that Jesus makes to us. Whatever your worry, whatever your need, whatever dream you have, whatever problem you're facing, first seek the kingdom and seek God's righteousness. The question is, do I believe it? The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that the kingdom and the righteousness of Christ, the kingdom and the righteousness of God coming first is the answer to every other question that you're asking? Do we believe it? Or are we prepared to trade being right for being right? I want to tell you about the leadership of this congregation right now. This is not a commentary on past leadership, just a reflection on the conversations that, that we're in at this moment. We are determined not to seek what is right, but what is righteous. Not to do what makes sense in our own wisdom and our own understanding, but to do what we firmly believe God is calling us to do. And you, you will find that you have more of a voice in this fellowship if you're seeking the kingdom rather than seeking your own will. That is a commitment that we have made to God. That is a commitment we have made to living in Scripture. If you seek the kingdom of God and you seek the righteousness of God, we're all ears. If you're seeking something else, we still care about you. We still love you. We'd still love to have a conversation with you, love to hear your opinion. But I guarantee it will not carry as much weight as seeking the kingdom.